0: This is The Guardian. Today, two years after the first coronavirus lockdown, we look ahead to a post-pandemic future. Talking Holly. Everyone remembers where they were when it happened. The date was March the 23rd, and I was in my kitchen talking to some friends on House Party. You remember that video calling out that boomed so briefly towards the start of the pandemic? (laughs) And we were all making dinner. There now follows a ministerial broadcast from the Prime Minister. Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this
1: country has faced for decades, and this country is not alone all over the world. We were, we're speculating
0: seeing... about what that announcement would be. and I remember my friend Ejen called it right. A national lockdown. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction: You must stay at home. Though I don't think any of us really believed that we'd be stuck making video calls like that one, for months and months to come. A second wave of
1: coronavirus cases in the UK could result in around 120,000 more deaths. A senior minister has warned that a third spike of coronavirus infections is possible. Covid may not have been in the headlines for a while, but it hasn't gone away. Far from it, as new data shows.
0: It was impossible to imagine then how it would feel to be away from each other for so long. To miss births, birthday parties, and to be separated from the people we love, even as they were dying. Two years later, what we used to count as normality still hasn't returned.
1: There may be future outbursts. It could continue to evolve for a very long time, forever in fact, um, and we'll always be adapting to it, just hopefully not at this quite dramatic level.
0: The science writer Laura Spinney dug through letters and diaries from the 1918 pandemic, the one that's sometimes been called the Spanish flu. And what she found about the way people recovered from and remembered that trauma might teach us something as we grasp for the end of COVID-19.
1: Science tells us that we are vulnerable. We are as vulnerable in some ways as they were in 1918. But in other ways, we are, we are more vulnerable. So. I don't think a lesson in humility goes amiss. And also, it's a source of all sorts of inspiration.
0: From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, how will history remember this pandemic? Laura Spinney, you're a science journalist, and a few years ago now, you wrote a book called Pale Rider, which explored how the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 affected people. It raged around the world and it killed somewhere between, I mean, the the estimates are difficult to get hold of, but between 50 and 100 million people. And for comparison, COVID-19 has killed around 6 million How exactly did that pandemic, that ginormous pandemic, the Spanish flu, come to an end?
1: It's a good question because pandemics don't really sort of start or finish in any kind of neat way. I mean, if you pictured it on a graph, it would look like a bell curve. You know, it just kind of oozes in and oozes out. Um, And so I suppose the bottom line is that we humans essentially decide when a pandemic ends. But if you think about it, there are three other pandemics raging in the world today. There's AIDS, uh, there is TB, and there is malaria. And they don't tend to get called pandemics anymore. And some people would argue that's because they're pandemics that have been beaten in the rich world. So we have wound down our efforts, and they just kind of rumble away uh, in poorer countries, um, which is pretty tragic when you think about it. It's us who decides when these outbreaks are over and what level of risk to life uh, and limb we're prepared to tolerate.
0: And in the case of the 1918 flu pandemic, was there a particular announcement or a date when it was officially declared over?
1: So at that time, there was no World Health Organization WHO. Uh, There were international health organizations, but they didn't really have this sort of proactive role in coordinating global crises that the WHO has today. So it wasn't a global decision, it was a local decision. And in a way, that makes sense, and it will happen this time as well. So, for example, in New York City, the health commissioner declared it over in November 1918. As it happens in hindsight, he did so a bit early because even in New York, they had a third wave in the early months of 1919. But uh, the point is that it was raging in other parts of the world for much longer than that, uh, and definitely in a kind of pandemic way. So, for example, the disease was still killing large numbers of people in the Pacific Islands. Uh, Research has shown uh, as late as July uh, 1921. Wow. And then, on top of that, you have to think about things like the long-term effects of the disease, the equivalent of what we call long COVID now, So that really illustrates how
0: subjective it is, how these pandemics can have a long tail and affect different countries for longer or shorter periods of time. We talked about how people like health commissioners, for example, respond, but there's no end date on the virus itself, is there?
1: So there's this enormously dynamic relationship from the moment the new pathogen emerges between it and us. And we shape each other. And, you know, you've heard people say that the world will never be COVID free. It'll be here for the duration with us.
0: COVID is not going away. No, it's it's, to gonna, it's going to be with us for for, uh, for many, many years, perhaps forever, but and what we what have is- to learn to live with it.
1: And it will be, just not in the pandemic state. It will eventually, probably, get to, you know, this famous state of endemicity, be endemic, and, I mean, one of the th- interesting things, I think, is that, you know, the-, the virus is sort of operating on a different time scale to us. We- we- we've had enough. We're bored. We want to move on. Um, but the virus is-, is still there and not really caring about our priorities. It is quite possible that Omicron is as severe as it will get um, and that future variants will be less severe. Unfortunately, it's also possible that future variants could be more severe. There is no law that says it has to keep on getting, at least in the short term, less severe. This, this virus, at this level of severity, is doing very well, thank you. It's able to reproduce and spread, which is its evolutionary goal uh, in the end. That's why we have to keep an eye on it, remain vigilant for the time being. Was that the same case
0: with the 1918 flu then? Did that keep mutating?
1: Yes, the 1918 pandemic is sometimes referred to as the mother of all pandemics because the flu strains that caused the next two flu pandemics of 1957 and 1968 were caused by viruses that shared most of its genes. London. The newspaper placards spelled out the story of coughs and sneezes which have emptied factories and offices and filled hospitals throughout the country. Many places are operating on skeleton staffs as the flu takes its toll. And the same is true of the one that caused the 2009 pandemic. They were closely related to that strain. Wow. So decades on. Yeah. And in each case, retaining a lot of the same genetic identity, but evolving sufficiently that it became enough of a novel pathogen to humanity. And that's another reason why it's so difficult to call the end of a pandemic, because the, the pathogen itself doesn't recede. It just gradually evolves to a state that we feel we can live with.
0: You mentioned earlier long COVID. In your questionnaire, you also talked about um, fatigue, palpitations, muscle aches, joint aches, <gasps> tummy pain, <laughs> diarrhoea. And, and I, I, I think I ticked I everything. Know. Things, <laughs> things have not been good. And that's really familiar for us as
1: post-COVID doctors that um, people have a large number of symptoms.
0: And about 1.3 million people in the UK, it's about... 2% of the population are living with long COVID, which is something that people mm. have to self report. But that's according to data from the Office for National Statistics. Mm. Now that most restrictions have been lifted in the UK, it occurs to me that the long term needs and vulnerabilities of those people who are still suffering with long COVID could just get forgotten by society. You know, they could just be expected to just function completely as they were before.
1: Yeah. And it comes back to our point about, you know, when do you call the end of a pandemic? Do they get forgotten? What happens about them? Why aren't they considered, you know, part of the victims of the pandemic? What happens to their care? I think that's a worry in that group of people. Of course it is, especially since they're also handling a lot of uncertainty in their own cases. when, If ever, will they recover? You know, what accommodations will be needed within society, given we were talking about quite considerable numbers? And, you know, I think it's really interesting, actually, the historical perspective here, because we we obviously could not have predicted long COVID. On the other hand, if we look back at historical pandemics, at least the ones that have been observed and measured in modern times, we could have guessed that there would have been a sort of uh, long-term shadow of this acute respiratory disease because it's happened almost without exception before. So it's interesting that policy decisions about containing COVID and the response to COVID are still pretty much exclusively based on infection rates, hospitalization rates and deaths. You almost never see disability long-term effects factored into them.
0: Although it seems It's a bit premature to talk about life on the other side of a pandemic. To look for examples in history about how our society might shift as a result of COVID-19, did you, in your research, see any examples of how the 1918 flu changed the way people lived their lives afterwards?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think it had an impact across every domain of human life and activity, even if kind of catching and glimpses of it is not always easy. In in the US, for example, there had been quite a strong anti-smoking lobby before the 1918 pandemic. Um, but then once the pandemic erupted, there was a kind of narrative that smoking could protect you. Um, and so it became fashionable. Uh, women took it up and the, the anti-smoking lobby collapsed, at least for a while. Wow.
0: I hadn't realised there was an anti-smoking lobby before then. I thought smoking had just been really cool until it wasn't.
1: <laughs> no, I think, you know, these things come in waves and we forget that, you know, there's not one sort of progression. It's, it's swings and roundabouts. But first of all, you know, there were demographic changes that that pandemic attacked preferentially people in the 20 to forty year age group. So it had huge effects. It created a lot of orphans. It created a lot of uh, elderly dependents. There were effects of the sort of equivalent of long COVID that we were just discussing. So this wave of melancholia, what was called melancholia, we'd call it depression, um, swept over the world, probably a post-viral effect as well. How was that recorded? It's Not really counted, but you kind of see it discussed in diaries and letters and in doctors' reports and in uh, psychiatric asylums. It definitely found its way into literature at that time. There was a a distinct shift uh, in the 1920s, especially in in Western literature, towards illness, including mental illness, becoming a kind of central theme. It's a sort of despairing kind of... uh, existentialism so for example in 1925 Virginia Woolf who herself was a regular invalid uh, published an essay called on being ill where she asked in fact why haven't we considered it why haven't we considered illness as a as an important theme in literature so there's this sense that the body moves into center stage from then on and of course it hasn't budged from there it's still you know we're kind of obsessed with our health today as well in literature
0: and what about now As restrictions are being lifted in the UK and the pandemic is being drawn to an official close from the government's perspective... We will remove all remaining domestic restrictions in law. What kinds of changes do you think we'll see in the way that we all behave, in the way that society runs?
1: There will be sweeping changes after this pandemic. I mean, I wrote a piece the other day about what the classroom will look like in the future education was already thinking about how to embrace the digital revolution before this pandemic came along then the pandemic came along and everybody had to move online overnight practically Um, and it's been a huge natural experiment we've learned the pros and cons of that we know that there's something about people being physically together in a classroom particularly children that is important that contributes to their education and that we need to preserve that. But we've also learned that a lot can be done online and that by creating some kind of hybrid model, we might be able to get more out of education. I think something similar has happened in justice. There's been a big push towards e-justice, towards moving not just court hearings um, and, and things online, but to digitalizing the entire process and that could potentially speed up and make cheaper the entire process and in so doing make justice accessible to much more of the world's population.
0: Yeah, I mean really that's a change that has been needing to happen for such a long time, isn't it? But I guess it's in so many of these cases it's reconfiguring how we see these institutions. It's like do we think of the court as a convening right. of people judging on a case? Or do we think of the court as a physical building that people have to find a way to go to?
1: Exactly. Is it a place or is it a service? And if it's a service, we should be probably harnessing these amazing digital tools uh, that we've been given in the last few decades to make it more human-centric. And there were worries that remain real worries, like you know, not everybody having equal access to IT or cybersecurity issues, and we have to deal with those. But I think the Style has shifted in the sense that whereas we saw those as impenetrable obstacles before, we now consider them obstacles that we need to find a way around, we need to find solutions to because the benefits are such that we need to embrace them.
0: And what about the scientific advances we've seen during this pandemic? The speed at which vaccines were developed was amazing. When it comes to understanding and fighting COVID, how far... Has the science actually come in these past two years?
1: It's been absolutely breathtaking. There's been the revolution in vaccinology, again, the seeds of which were laid before the pandemic, but the pandemic gave a huge boost and we saw that it was possible to make vaccines, first of all to COVID, which nobody was at all sure of at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, Then there's been a revolution in the sequencing of disease-causing agents, the SARS-CoV-2 virus in this case. It's been amazing how we've tracked the evolution of this virus in practically real time and how that information has informed our response. And also the revolution in just data, using again these amazing digital tools at our disposal. Uh, the, The way we've managed to count deaths and sicknesses from COVID, we managed to come up with a much more accurate sense of the scale of this pandemic Uh, than for any pandemic in the past and faster than any pandemic in the past. And that, again, is important because if we don't have information about who's falling sick, how many, who's dying, we don't know how bad it is and we don't know at what level to set our response, what restrictions we need to take on board in order to control this menace. So all of these things have been huge and they will um, transform Science and medicine for a long time after this pandemic. They're here for good, no doubt about it. Coming up, this has
0: been the first pandemic lived through social media. How will it be remembered? Laura, you made the point in your book, which I think is really fascinating and um, frankly a little bit concerning, that pandemics seem to be collectively remembered much less than other major world events like wars. The difference in this case is that so, so many people have been documenting their experiences of living through COVID 19. They've been documenting it on social media. Books have been written, songs have been released.
1: Make sure your immune system's right hey.
0: Corona, corona, corona Girl, I don't go to work, work. I don't leave, I stay. stay I don't care, I eat, eat, eat and sleep all day okay. And then I watch TV Even, you know, people have been making dance moves about this. I'll
1: teach you the dance. So we need to watch the hands.
0: Surely there's no chance of human history forgetting this pandemic.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Um, I was reading an article the other day in the LA Times uh, by a writer, US writer called Thomas Bissell. And he was basically saying, uh, if you're thinking of writing a COVID novel, don't (laughs) spare us. Uh, And I kind of share his sentiments, like who wants to read a pandemic novel? We've just lived through it. And the point he made and that you know, I, I agree with is that people want to read novels about war. Why? Because most people haven't been there. It's like another aspect of human experience that they have not shared and they want to understand it or they want to understand what it means artistically. The same isn't true of a pandemic. We've all been through it. We all know its impact on us and on those around us. So somehow reading about it is just excessive you know maybe not later on when, when it's faded a little from memory or, or in the next generation those who didn't live through it but for us I think it's it's I don't know maybe I'm just expressing a minority opinion but it seems rather no unattractive
0: I, I, feel, I feel like a lot of people share your uh, share your feeling if you're going to write a diary bury it like yeah. Samuel
1: Pepys's cheese Um, And maybe dig it up for somebody else to (laughs) dig up later. (laughs) Uh, Humanity progresses because of a capacity to forget the mistakes of the past and move on. So there is an argument that some forgetting is helpful. Um, And, you know, of course, it's very difficult. The people who have been bereaved and who have been left ill. Uh, you know, long term chronically debilitated by this disease do not want us to forget and will certainly never forget themselves. Yeah. But you have to make a distinction, I think, between the individual level and the population level. Humanity throughout its history has just adapted and moved on. And that can be cruel, that can sound cruel individuals can get left behind. But we do. We're like viruses. We just keep on reproducing and evolving and moving forward. That's what we do because we're a living organism like them. Mm.
0: And yeah, for some people, it'll be incredibly important. It has been incredibly important to find ways to document how this pandemic has scarred them, as you said. Are there any ways of documenting it that you've seen that have kind of really moved you, whether that's Diary excerpts or songs or, you know, pieces of visual art.
1: I was quite moved by the plans I saw for a kind of global memorial monument to this pandemic uh, that I think might now be underway. Um, I believe it got the go ahead in Montevideo in Uruguay on the edge of the ocean there. And The idea is that it's this kind of uh, concrete structure, a kind of concave bowl, you can walk into it, you can see the sea raging at the bottom of a hole, and you can sort of feel how small we are as humans and how at the mercy we are of natural forces. You might have an inkling of the fact that nature has turned on us, if you want to put it that way, in the past quite regularly, in the form of pandemics, three per century on average over the last 500 years, and that it will happen again. And that actually scientists tell us that it's going to speed up. There are going to be more in future. There are more zoonotic spillovers coming. So, you know, I think there is something to be said for forgetting, but of course there are reasons we need to be reminded if only the very practical one of getting ready for the next pandemic, making sure our health systems are robust, making sure our societies are robust, not unequal or less unequal than they are now. All of these things, we need to remember in order to remedy those. Um, and I think a monument like that, you know, that just kind of overaws you with the power of nature might be exactly the right kind of approach to remind us, mm-hmm. without reminding us, if you see what I mean, to remind us of that it can happen again, that it's enormous, that it's dramatic, that it radically changes our world. So, you know, maybe it's going to be good in the end that we slightly adjust our mindset and while not forgetting the huge advances that we've made, also remember that we're still weak in places.
0: Laura, thank you very much. I have really enjoyed this.
1: That's my pleasure. Fascinating to talk to you.
0: That was Laura Spinney. She's written several science books, including Pale Rider, and you should also check out her articles for The Guardian. She's just had one out recently about how the World Health Organization and leading scientists are planning to respond to the next possible pandemic. And now, while I've got you, I've got something to ask of you. What other podcasts are you listening to? What do you like about The Guardian's podcasts at the moment and what could we be doing better? Please go to www.guardiansurveys.com forward slash podcast and fill in the survey there. We'll post the link to that in the show notes to this episode as well. And your answers will help us shape what we make next. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser and sound designed by Axel Cacoutier. Our executive producers are Lee Rao, and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.